Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. The fate of our democracies, of free society, has been a persistent theme uh, as uh, on this show as it's gone daily, particularly during the the triple crisis of capitalism, uh, coronavirus, and race relations in the United States. Um, Many of our shows have addressed the threat to democracy and freedom from the right, but we also last week had Brett Stevens on the show talking about the threat from the left. Uh, My guest today is an old debating partner and friend, or debating opponent and friend, he's still talking to me, Yasha Munk. Um, He is uh, one of the world's leading thinkers about democracy. His book, the People versus Democracy has done very well. It's become, um, say, a classic, but certainly one of the reference books in, 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 in the contemporary literature about the crisis of democracy. And he has become, I don't know if he, if he was, uh, I don't know if, if, like Brett Stevens, he was trending on Twitter, but he's certainly become a major figure over the last week because he's launching his own network, his own reading club, his own platform for saving democracy called Persuasion. He says in the beginning of his uh, post about Persuasion, when he announced it on uh, on June 30th, he said, the core values of a free society are more imperiled now than they've been at any point since World War II. Yasha, are you being a little overdramatic here? Well, first of all, to be clear, when I say that the values of liberal democracy are more imperiled now than they have been since World War II, I'm in large part talking about the threat of uh, far-right populism. I'm talking about people like Donald Trump here in the United States, uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Narendra Modi in India, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, And yes, I think because this is a weakening of democracy in the heartland of democracy, in countries that we long assumed would always be democratic and are now under real full-time threat, that is the biggest danger to democracy since World War II. Now, at the precise moment at which we would need the courage of our conviction to stand up for the values of a free society, at the very moment in which we would need to be building the broadest possible coalition in order to make sure that we defeat those figures, I'm also worried about some of the turn on parts of the left, not the whole of the left, and this is not, nothing to do with how far you are on the left, um, but a sort of illiberal spirit um, which is openly saying that free speech is a right-wing concept and we should give up on it, that due process is not necessary when people are trying to do the right thing, um, uh, really challenging some of the very basic uh, principles and ideals that have uh, made liberal democracy possible. And so um, I think that this is a moment in which we have to stand up to right-wing populism proudly by articulating a better vision. And that also requires that we resist some of those illiberal temptations on the left. And that really is the core of the mission of this magazine and this community uh, that, that I founded in the form of persuasion. You were involved with Tony Blair's Renewing the Centre initiative in the UK. Um, are you positioning yourself 
in the center? Is that a lonely, a lonely place to be these days? Well, I'm I, I'm not sure that I would call myself a centrist. Actually, I'm on uh, the left. I'm on the moderate left. I'm not on the far left. Um, uh, but uh, you know, some members of our community are very robust uh, conservatives. So we have David French, for example, who certainly is no centrist. He is a proud right winger, but he is a philosophically liberal right winger. And we also have many people uh, on our board and writing for us who are very proudly on the left. People who supported Bernie Sanders in the uh, primaries, people like uh, the author of one of our first pieces, Zaid Jelani, um, who uh, you know is economically and in other ways very far on the left. But what they're united by is a belief that we need to embrace principles like free speech, like due process, the basic institutions of a free society. Not because those are more important than anything else, because it's uh, but because it's only those principles and institutions that allow us to disagree between those political poles. So, um, you, know, if you're you know, if you're robustly left-wing, if you're robustly conservative, you're very welcome in persuasion as long as you believe in the three core commitments of this community, which are that we want to live in a society of free individuals in which all people have a chance to pursue a meaningful life irrespective of who they are, which are secondly that we believe in the important social value of the practice of persuasion, which means that you have to stand up for free speech and free inquiry and against some of the attempts to uh, make that impossible at the moment. Um, and finally, where you want to do all of that in a spirit of persuasion, that you don't just want to mock or troll those who disagree with us, but actually to persuade them. I'm not sure if you answered my question. I, I, I said, are you part of the center? You said you're part of the moderate left. Is it possible to be a centrist these days, or is that an archaic term? Is it meaningless? Well, again, I, I don't, I, you know, Andrew, I, I know you want to talk about this, but my point is that I don't define myself particularly as a centrist. I don't think that's a particularly meaningful term to me, and so I don't care whether or not that's a meaningful thing. But there is a sense of the word center uh, as uh, expressed in that famous poem uh, where there's a fear that the center cannot hold. Um, and, you know, in, in that sense of center, when we talk about a center of people who all believe in the core values of a free society, who want to make sure that we're respectful to each other across political differences, that we um, uh, allow people who have different political opinions from us uh, the ability to, to keep the job and speak the mind without fear of private repraisals. Um, in that center, I, I very much hope that, in, in that sense, I hope, I very much hope the center will hold. Um, and I'm quite optimistic about that because when I look at the list of people who are on our board of advisors, there are people who are, uh, who come from all kinds of ideological traditions, who, um, you know, come from different parts of a political spectrum, um, and who are united both in the abhorrence of uh, for a time populists like Donald Trump, but also in the concern about the liberal trends in other parts of our society. Uh, you're also a, a co-signatory to the, the Harper's uh, letter on justice and open debate that, that came out this week. And what's interesting to me is that the controversy seems to be on the left rather than the right. You say that the primary threat to liberal democracy is posed by the populist right in your in your persuasion piece, and I don't think there's any doubt about that. But isn't the debate, the real debate here, and a lot of the criticism you've got and the Harper's piece has got is coming from the left. So the really interesting, passionate, and perhaps bloody conversation is between uh, those people who claim at least to be standing up for a free society versus uh, a, a new left in America, particularly one coming out of the universities. 
Well, I'm not sure that I entirely accept the characterization because actually I'm very proud to have been attacked from both sides. So absolutely there are people on the left who are saying, oh my God, the idea that there's any liberal um, tendencies on the left is crazy and how can anybody care about anything um, other than the very real threat that Donald Trump poses? Um, and then there's plenty of people on the right who said, oh my God, you know, it's nuts. Even the people who acknowledge that there's liberal tendencies on parts of the left um, still want to say that Trump is a danger. And, you know, Neil Ferguson, for example, said, uh, you know, I mean, the idea that uh, right-wing populism is a real threat uh, is completely unconvincing. So, um, you know, if you can define uh, somebody's character by uh, the enemies and friendly uh, interlocutors or critical interlocutors that they attract, um, then I think I've been doing quite well over the past uh, week or so. You argue in your piece that defenders of free speech have fallen short. Um, what should we, and I use that word carefully, what should we, those people who care about free speech in our society, what should we be doing that uh, we haven't been doing? Well, one of the things is not to fall into the temptation of a strategic way of talking about the world. I get that people are saying Donald Trump is the president of the United States and shouldn't that be our only focus? And then perhaps we shouldn't criticize when people who are in agreement with us on the most important issue of the day, which is whether or not Donald Trump should get reelected and have a chance to further undermine our democratic system, uh, when they do things wrong, shouldn't we just sort of shut up? Um, but I think that that leads to real injustices. Um, as you may know, I reported on the case, for example, of uh, a, Lati a Latino uh, worker in San Diego who uh, was driving home in the company truck and, you know, happened to have his hand uh, dangling out of his truck in such a way that somebody uh, mistook him for making an OK symbol. Now, probably most of your listeners don't even know what's wrong with making the OK symbol. Um, but a few years ago, some trolls in 4chan decided to pretend that it's a white supremacist symbol because if you squint very hard, it sort of looks like you're spelling out the letter WP for white power. Uh, and this has now somehow become accepted by part of the activist left who are saying, but if you make an OK symbol, you must be a neo-Nazi. Now, this guy is somebody who has no interest in politics, has never voted in a presidential election, um, has no history of involvement with white supremacists or the far right at all. Um, and within two hours, he was suspended from his job. By that night, his truck was taken away from him. And by the following Monday, he had actually lost his job. He told me about talking to, you know, a panel of investigators within the company who happened to be all white, saying, look at the color of my skin. How can I be a white supremacist? Um, you know, this was the best job he's ever had in his life. It's the first time that he wasn't living paycheck to paycheck. And now he's unemployed. So, you know... I'm not saying that this is the biggest problem in the United States. It is not. But I think uh, it is not right uh, to pretend that these problems don't exist. It is not right to pretend that they do anything to solve the very real problems we have with racial discrimination and police violence and uh, other issues of uh, racial injustice in this country. If we want to do something about them, we should stop pretending to be doing something about them by sacrificing innocent people and develop a vision for how our society can better live up to its noble ideals. And that's precisely uh, what I want to be doing in the pages of Persuasion. www.persuasion.community, by the way. Ever the salesman, Yasha. Um, you're also uh, uh, a university professor. You teach at Johns Hopkins. 
Is there a generational element to this crisis of democracy? I've noticed, and I'm not going to refer to my own kids because that's pathetically anecdotal, but I, I get the sense, perhaps, that um, there's a certain intellectual brittleness to the younger generation. Am I being just an old white male here? I don't know, did you just call your kids intellectually brittle? Um, uh, look, I didn't I'm, actually, I didn't do that, but <laughs> I, I, I implied it. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I love teaching. And um, I'm, I'm always simultaneously very heartened and in one specific respect slightly worried when I teach. Uh, you know, Johns Hopkins, where I teach, is an incredibly diverse university. Uh, we have, I think, about 25% of the incoming undergraduate class is white. Uh, the rest is Hispanic, Black, Asian, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and these students come together in my seminar, and I'm sure that there's some tensions that they have and some disagreements that they have and so on, but they uh, you know, engage with material in a serious way. They bring in their identity, as I bring my identity to trying to understand the world that's inescapable, but they don't just say, I am a so-and-so and therefore you have to disagree with me. Or, you know, I am a so-and-so and therefore this is the truth. They seriously grapple with challenging intellectual arguments in a mutually respectful manner even when they disagree. Now, what I'm struck by is that if I asked them whether that's possible, they would probably say no. The beliefs that they are being taught uh, often in, in schools, in high schools, increasingly also at college, is that... Uh, that kind of genuine engagement, that kind of general mutual understanding uh, across racial and religious lines is not possible. And that, to me, is very, very depressing. Is the challenge then to take this issue of identity and identity politics out of political discussion? Can, can those two be separated? Can indeed we separate the public and the private? And is that the key to... Um, to, to restoring or defending a free society? Well, the word identity politics covers so many different things that um, I don't actually think it's particularly useful. There are forms of identity politics that have always existed and that are perfectly appropriate. There's nothing wrong with um, you know, the existence of an Italian-American uh, association. There's nothing wrong with the existence of the, w, the NAACP. Um, uh, there's nothing uh, illegitimate about American Muslims trying to organize uh, political influence uh, and, and represent their interests. Um, uh, that's, that's a perfectly normal uh, part of politics that have always existed, and I, and I have no objection to it at all. What I worry about is a set of views which say that your identity will always define you to such an extent that you can't actually have... Uh, a mutual understanding and friendly relations with other people. I mean, the best-selling book in the country as we speak is White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. And what, what, what Robin DiAngelo argues is that white people should recognize that they have a shared, common racial identity and that this is the core of everything in this country. When you look at her descriptions of what interactions between white and non-white people should look like, it includes, for example, the idea that every time a white person interrupts a non-white person, they are perpetrating an act of racism. Now, my friends interrupt me all the time, and I interrupt my friends all the time, whether they are white or whether they are non-white. Um, the idea that you can be friends without sometimes jumping in when they're saying something in an excited way in order to finish their sentence 
the idea that when that happens, you have to have a half-hour apology session in which you acknowledge racism you have perpetrated against them makes me think that Robin DiAngelo does not have many non-white friends. So this is not, to me, the model of a vibrant, fair, multi-ethnic society that we want to build. That's my objection to certain forms of identity politics, to the kind of form of identity politics that people like Robin DiAngelo think. So I, I get what you're trying to do from the point of view of the left, that this is the community you're trying to, 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 to bring into persuasion. What about from the right? You're obviously not going to convince the hardcore authoritarians, the Bolsonaros, and perhaps the Trumps. But what about somebody like Niall Ferguson? You half dismissed him earlier. Wouldn't you want him and his ilk uh, to be part of the persuasion community? What do you need to do to bring in the smart conservatives? Absolutely. So one of the first events we're going to have is a friendly debate between me and Neil about whether or not right-wing populism is in fact the biggest danger. Neil is always a good faith uh, interlocutor, and I did not mean to dismiss him early on at all. We have a very important disagreement about this. Um, I think that he makes light of a danger posed by people like Trump and Bolsonaro, and that that's a grave error. Um, but he thinks I'm making a grave error, and I'm very happy to try and persuade him, and hopefully I will. Um, uh, you know, now, if you are cheering on um, the destruction of democracy, if you are cheering on racism, if you are cheering on bigotry, uh, then you're not a member of our community because we are a set of people who are open to changing our minds but not our fundamental values. I, I, I don't think that's true of Neil. Um, it is true, unfortunately, uh, of many people on the right who have, um, you know, thrown the lot in with Donald Trump. Um, and, uh, you know, while we would love to change their mind, they are not the natural constituents of our community. When the history of, 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 of the Trump era gets written, my sense is that the people who are going to come out of it best are actually the never-Trumpers from the right. We had Peter Weiner on the show a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was a fantastic interview. Uh, and isn't it the conservatives, the, the Weiners, the, the David Frums, perhaps the David Brooks of the world, who have most distinguished themselves in the Trump era? Oh, I mean, I agree that um, it is easier for people on the left to criticize Donald Trump, to warn about right-wing populism, because it doesn't cost us anything. What's hard for us is to criticize the left. Now, for those people who were on the right, whose friends were in the conservative movement, whose jobs were in the conservative movement, um, you know, who had members of a conservative movement who were the godfathers, the godparents to their children, and they knew that they might lose those friendships, they might lose those jobs, they might suddenly be looked at as enemies by the people who have godparents to their children. Those people, when they stood up to Donald Trump and said the truth about this political moment, deserve our deep, deep admiration and respect. And so, you know, I'm particularly honored uh, to have some of those people, like David French, um, uh, as part of our community. You should consider Wayne too. I think he's really good. Um, uh, yeah, sure. Some people will be listening to this, and they keep you, you keep on talking your, about you describing yourself as being on the left, and they might think to themselves, "This guy doesn't sound as if he's on the left." What makes you a leftist? Well, what makes me a leftist, most of all, is that my deepest aspiration is to build a more fair, multi-ethnic society. I recognize that this country is marked by deep historical racial injustice and that this injustice continues uh, to shape the country today. 
And uh, one of my deepest normative commitments is to try and overcome that. Now, again, I don't think you do that by like uh, one member of the New York City Board of Education uh, telling one of her colleagues that it traumatizes people for a white man to have a brown baby uh, sitting on his lap. Uh, that is a neo-segregationism from the left, which is not going to build a better, fairer society in which we recognize that we are able to have things in common across those lines. That used to be a natural left-wing position, and I'm not willing to cede that position um, to people like uh, Robin D'Angelo. I'm also economically um, appreciative of uh, the, the benefits of free market and appreciative of the good things about globalization and capitalism, uh, but favor redistributive policies, which ensure that we have a robust welfare state, which ensure that um, uh, every citizen of a developed democracy like the United States is, uh, has access to uh, high-quality health care, uh, which ensures that children have opportunity, uh, get good educations irrespective of how much money uh, their parents make, uh, that people, even if they don't go off to college at fancy schools, can lead uh, meaningful, dignified lives of material security. Um, if all of that is not enough to make me a leftist, uh, then I'm not sure what is. Everyone, of course, should read your book, The People Versus Democracy, which is a, it's an excellent uh, investigation of the way in which authoritarianism is challenging um, free society. But what else should people be reading uh, in, 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 in our current predicament, uh, Yasha, as we're all still stuck at home? I know at Persuasion you're planning some, some book reading uh, initiatives which may be an excellent way of, of fostering not only discussion, but more people going back to excellent, excellent texts. What, 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 what's on your mind at the moment and what books should people be looking at? Well, I've been thinking about this question very hard because we've been planning and setting up these book clubs and we have a lot more than I can sort of share with you right now. But I think some of the books that we're going to be reading early on are uh, you know, precisely an encapsulation of what we need to do at the moment, which is to uh, rethink the liberal tradition in a confident, forward-looking way. So as part of Persuasion, we're going to have uh, Jonathan Haidt and Richard Reeves talk about uh, John Stuart Mill. We're going to have Thomas Chatterton Williams talk about uh, Albert Murray. Um, we're going to have Omar Wasso uh, lead us through some of the recent uh, political science research on questions of race here in the United States. We'll have People like Martin Gurry think about uh, uh, the internet, um, both talking about his own book, Revolt of the Public, um, and some other key texts that help us understand the transformative role that technology makes. Um, so uh, so I think those are some of the books that I would recommend. Those are some of the books that I'm busy reading right now. Um, and I hope that you will join us in the community at www.persuasion.community. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. 
and thanks so much for listening.